Now, this morning, I'm going to get right into the Word. And if you had the opportunity to get some of the notes, uh, you can hold on to that because actually you won't be taking notes towards the end of the sermon, all right? There's some groundwork that I need to lay, so just hold on to it. Listen and allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you. Now, before I get into the sermon today, I want to say this, that I have been preaching on this sermon series the last three to four weeks. And so I never want anyone to think in the building that it's pinpointed to you personally. It's not pinpointed to anyone personally. This is what I have prepared to preach all year. And I've been promoting this. And so I just want you to know that if you're here today and, um, uh, you know, maybe if this is uncomfortable for you or you know somebody that it may be uncomfortable for, then I just want you to know that this is the best place to be on a Sunday morning with Christians who love each other, and this is a hospital for everybody that's sick. And the last time I checked, we're all sick. Thank God for the five amens and the three grunts and the three head shakes. But the last time I checked, we were all sick. All of us have something in our life that we need to work on. Amen? All right, so let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you for this opportunity just to minister your word today. I pray that you would open up our ears and our hearts that we would hear your word and your word would go forth in power and your word would go forth in boldness. In Jesus' name, amen. A few weeks ago, I started a sermon series called Living in Babylon. Now, this sermon series centered on a man by the name of Daniel. Everybody say Daniel. The Bible tells us that Daniel was a devoted man of God who loved God. And the Bible tells us in the book of Daniel that his homeland was destroyed by the Babylonians. The scripture tells us that the king of Babylon took Daniel and some of his friends and took them as prisoners of war and brought them to the city of Babylon. The Bible tells us that Daniel, in particular, had to live in the city of Babylon all of his life. Now, this is the kicker. The city of Babylon was a pagan city. It was godless. It was wicked. And Daniel had to live in that environment all of his life. Now, Daniel loved God. He was devoted to God. But Daniel was forced to live in a culture that was godless and pagan and evil and wicked. And this morning, you and I are like Daniel. You and I, as Christians, we have to live in a society that has become more godless as the years have progressed. Babylon, I said a few weeks ago, represents an evil system that opposes God. Now, the city of Babylon does not exist any longer, but the spirit of Babylon is still at work in the world today. It is still at work. The spirit of Babylon, which is a system that opposes God, anything that's godly, anything that's righteous, the spirit of Babylon will oppose it. And the spirit of Babylon has invaded our churches, it's invaded our homes. It's invaded our families. It's invaded our cities. It's even invaded our nation. 
the spirit of Babylon seeks to brainwash and confuse our children. We have never lived in a generation like this of such mass confusion. Who is right? Who is wrong? What should I say? How should I believe? What church is right? The spirit is confusing us, not only us, but it's invading our, even our school system where our children are confused. The Spirit is coming after our children. And parents, let me make sure you understand this quite frankly. The Spirit is after your child. And it will not stop until it brainwashes your child. And that is why as parents, we've got to see ourselves not only as parents, but we got to see ourselves as disciplers of the Christian faith. That your responsibility as a parent is not to protect them from everything, but to prepare them to live in a Babylon culture. Can I hear an amen? It, the Babylon culture will persecute anyone who stands against it. The Babylon culture will say tolerance, 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 but it only has tolerance for their views. Anybody that disagrees with them, they immediately will turn up the furnace seven times hotter and they will persecute you. Daniel decided to serve God in a culture that was pagan and godless. And guess what? The Bible that I read, my friends, Daniel succeeded. And my friends, no matter how hard it may be to live in this Babylonian culture, you can do it. Because of previous years, Christians have lived in most, they have lived in more uh, godless uh, society and pagan society than you and I have lived in. And they have made it. Now I want you to see what the Bible says in Daniel chapter 1 and verse 8. The secret to Daniel's life was this. The Bible says in Daniel 1 and chapter 1 verse 8 that Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. In other words, he purposed in his heart that he was going to serve God and not eat the meat and the food that was offered to the idols of Babylon. And my friends, that is the secret of living and how to live in Babylon. You have to purpose in your heart that you're going to serve God. You've got to purpose in your heart that you're going to put him first in your life. That is the key. He purposed in his heart. How do I know that? Because if you look at the book of Daniel, chapter 3, his friends was thrown into the fiery furnace. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that's Daniel's friends. His friends also purposed in their heart that they would serve God. But then in Daniel chapter 6, years later, King Darius threw Daniel in the lion's den. And Daniel survived and thrived. My point is this. If you don't make up your mind in chapter 1 to serve God, then chapter 3 and chapter 6 will knock you down. You'll fall. But if you will make a decision in chapter 1 that I'm going to serve God in this culture, 
It don't matter what the enemy throws it at you at chapter 3 or chapter 6. You will prevail and you will succeed and you will thrive because you made the decision in your heart in chapter 1 that you were going to serve God. That's what I like to call chapter 1 people. Chapter 1 people don't make up their mind at chapter 3 to serve God. They don't make up their mind in the fiery furnace. Should we serve God or shouldn't we serve God? They don't make up their mind in the lion's den whether they want to serve God or not. They had already purposed in their heart in chapter 1 that they was going to serve God. So it didn't matter how hot the furnace was and how many lions were in the den. They already made up their mind there was going to serve God. Hallelujah. Is there anybody up in this church this morning that you made up your mind years ago at chapter 1 that it don't matter what the culture throws at you in chapter 3 or chapter 6? I have decided I'm going to serve God. God, I have purposed in my heart that God is the one I will worship. And that is the key to live in Babylon. Now let me tell you something. The moment you make up your mind that you're going to serve God, people will oppose you. They will call you names. They will label you as a racist. They will label you as a hater, a Jesus freak, too conservative, unintelligent, not relevant, and closed-minded. The culture will turn up the furnace seven times hotter. The culture will throw some more lions in the den. They'll turn it up because they want you to deny your faith. But you got a purpose in your heart that as you live in Babylon, as you live in this culture, that you will not serve the gods of immorality. And that you will not bow down to the gods of perversion. And that you will not bow down to the gods of relativism. And you will not bow down to the gods of humanism. Amen. You see what Jesus said in John 15 verse 18. Jesus said this, if the world hates you, keep in mind they hated me. If you belong to the world, it would love you as your own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, and that's why the world hates you. Christians, Christ's point, the world is not on our side. They should not agree with us. We should be different than the world. The world will hate you. Jesus said, The world would hate you. But Jesus said, you're going to live in this world. And they're going to hate you. God doesn't deliver us from Babylon. He gives us the grace to go through Babylon. And sometimes we want this escapism. God, deliver me. Oh, I can't wait till Jesus comes back. And my friends, I can't wait till he comes back either. But I also know as I read the scriptures, this is not supposed to be a great escape. This is supposed to be a missional endeavor where you and I are to be salt and light in the world so that we may bring every soul unto heaven and empty out hell. Can I hear an amen? I want to let you know something. When I read the book of Daniel, man, it just encourages me. There's something on the inside of me that I just want to shout hallelujah when I read this book because I, it's so clear that Daniel, a man of God, a man that loved God, lived in a culture like ours, probably much worse. But Daniel succeeded and he thrived. 
Look at what the Bible says in Daniel chapter 1 verse 20. Daniel chapter 1 verse 20. The Bible says in all the matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined him, he found them ten times better than all of the astrologers. Did you see what happens here? The king in Babylon found Daniel and his three friends ten times better than those who worked in his field. I'm telling you that you can live in Babylon, you can live in this culture, you can live in this society, but you can also live in a society and live above it. Just because you live in Babylon doesn't mean that Babylon has to live in you. I'm going to say that again. Just because you live in Babylon doesn't mean Babylon has to live in you. You may be surrounded by the waters of hate, but don't let the water get in your boat. Daniel lived a life that pleased God and he was 10 times better. Can I just stop and say this? The same power that can deliver a drug addict is the same power that can keep you saved all of your life. Hallelujah. Can I hear an amen this morning? Can can I just preach to you? No matter how bad it may get in this world, no matter how bad the persecution may be, you don't have to... You don't have to give up on your faith. You don't have to go the way of the world, nor do you need to backslide. The Bible says the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead, it now lives in your mortal body. I want to let you know that Jesus Christ is greater than the forces of Babylon. That Jesus inside of you is greater than this pagan and godless culture that you and I live in. You can live a holy life. You can live a godly life. You can live a life that pleases God even in the midst of evil. Even in the midst of paganism. Even in the midst of humanism. You can live a life that pleases God in the midst of all of that. And my prayer is God give us some men and give us some women that can live a life that pleases you in Babylon. I believe that God is going to do that. The first week, we looked at the spirit of Babylon. That took two weeks. And then eventually I got to the truth versus my truth. In this society, it's very easy for people to say, my truth, my truth, my truth. You may follow your truth, but I follow my truth. But we found out in that sermon series there's, you, can't, you can't do that. There's no legs to hold that theory up. It doesn't work. And then I have suggested to you the last months that I was going to deal with this particular sensitive issue this morning about LGBTQ. Now, for the sake of time, I cannot deal with everything in the LGBTQ community. It would be impossible. It would take weeks and weeks and weeks to deal with every issue. And I'm not going to do that. I'm going to deal with the subject of homosexuality today in gay marriage. Now, I realize that this is a sensitive issue, so it's important that every one of us listens very carefully to my heart. It's very important that you see the lens by which I'm preaching this sermon. If not, you can leave this church and create a story in your mind that I never told. So it's important that you listen carefully and objectively and not subjectively. I realize that this is a sensitive issue. The issue of homosexuality and gay marriage is not only a theological issue in Scripture, but in recent years it has become a political agenda 
in America. Homosexuality and the group claims that they are an oppressed minority group in America. They say that they want their rights. And in some cases, this group is making the case that this is a civil rights issue. They've made the case not too long ago that just like slavery became a civil rights issue years ago, so isn't homosexuality in the same sentence. Just like there was Christians that were wrong about the civil rights movements, in particular the slavery issue, there are Christians that are wrong concerning the homosexuality matter. Christians in years past have used the Bible to justify slavery, and they've also used the Bible to justify other things in the name of God that Christians have participated in. And so the LGBT community is insisting that this is a civil rights issue, and Christians have gotten it wrong before, and they are wrong this time on this issue. And so their claim is that this, their rights must be protected. Now, my friends, the culture that you and I live in wants to tell you that you're either for it or you're against it. From the media to the education, the message is clear. Homosexuality is not only normal, but it is good. And it should be celebrated. And failure to do so is an automatic indictment on your ability to love and to accept those who are different from you. But my friends, it's more than that. They will go push the envelope and say, if you do not celebrate it, then you are intolerant, you are a racist, and you are promoting hate speech. The same group that cries tolerance, tolerance, is the same group that if you stand and voice your opinion, you are now a racist, you are filled with hate speech. You see, the celebration of traditional marriage between the union of one man and one woman is now almost considered outdated and closed-minded. Degrading homosexuality as anything less than beautiful with mutual love between the love of same-sex partners is what Jesus would have endorsed, is what this community is saying. Now recently, I need to say this because it is true, there has been prominent gay actors in Hollywood that has spoken against the LGBT community. They have said that their agenda that they're trying to produce is damaging our children and that the LGBTQ community and their agenda should not be forced in our churches. It should not be forced in the government and it certainly shouldn't be forced in the school system. Their agenda should be removed. This certain group of LGBT community says we just want to live our life the way we deem necessary and everybody else lives their life, but we don't want to push their agenda. And even though I may not agree with their lifestyle, I am thinking to myself, thank God some people still have some sense. But there is a group in the LGBT community that is forcing their agenda in every level of life, including the school, the media, the government, and forcing our churches to accept it, to promote it, and to ordain homosexual ministers and to bless homosexual unions. If not, then they can fine you for a hate speech, and eventually, in some cases, some people were jailed. Now, there is a lot of tension over this issue, and not only tension, but yet there is mass confusion over this issue. 
Churches right now are dividing over the same-sex marriage issue and the ordination of gay marriage. As I speak, the United Methodist Church is already splitting. They have approximately 30,000 churches in the United States of America. And right now, as I speak, over 6,000 of those churches have left the United Methodist Church and they have formed their own denomination called, and I quote, the Global Methodist Church. A lot of the Methodist churches in Joplin have disaffiliated themselves with the United Methodist Church, and some of them have already associated themselves with the new movement called the Global Methodist Church. The Global Methodist Church is a Bible-believing conservative Methodist group that abhors the teachings of the United Methodist Church. Great division over it. If you have time, you're welcome to look at their last annual convention or general assembly where great tension and great arguments were made over this particular issue. I know that this is hard for some of us because there's lots of feelings involved in this. This is not just a theological issue. This is a family issue. This is a heart issue. If it was just a theological issue, we could probably just quickly look at the Bible and settle it and go on and look at church history. But this is a sensitive issue because it involves our children. It involves our loved ones. It involves people that we work with. It involves our churches. It involves people that mean something to us. Parents are lost in how how to deal with their children. Many of the people that we work with are participating in this lifestyle. And many people, even in the church, are dealing with same-sex attraction and they feel lost. Many people go to church Sunday after Sunday with same-sex feelings, but yet they have no one to talk to. Who am I supposed to share this with? Who can I talk to? There are some people so confused over their sexual identity because ever since they were a child, they have had certain feelings towards a certain sex. What do you do with that? Are people born gay? Is there a gay gene in us or in some people? What do you do with people who say that ever since they were a baby, ever since that they remember, they were automatically, all, all of it, automatically attracted to the same sex? How does the church answer these perplexing issues that are before us? These issues are so perplexing that people are leaving churches by the droves. They're hurt. They're upset. And we cannot sit along anymore and deny the reality that we are living in. We cannot deny that we are living in Babylon and there is much confusion over lots of things. What does the Bible say about homosexuality? And what does it say about gay marriage? How should we approach this issue as a theological body, as a body of believers, as a church? What should we do and how should we respond to this? Now, let me say this with all love and respect. It's coming from a pastor's heart. Please understand me. It is coming from the depths of my soul today. Coming from the depths of my spirit. I love people. And it doesn't matter whether you are struggling with same-sex attraction or you are involved in a relationship. I love you. I'm a pastor. I'm a shepherd. I'm a father. And I may not understand your struggle. I may not understand everything. But I could be a father and walk 
beside of you and hold your hand and cry with you and pray with you and help navigate these issues together. You see, my friends, this is a hospital. And sometimes we view church as a job interview. We come to church with our very best face because that's what we do at a job interview. You put your best foot forward. You put your best outfit on and you say the right things, hoping for the job. And that's how we view church sometimes. We come to church putting our best foot forward. How are you doing? I'm blessed and highly favored. I'm the head and not the tail. We put our best foot forward. But my friends, I don't believe that we should view church as a job interview. I believe that we should view church as a waiting room, a hospital waiting room. Because if you're in the waiting room of a hospital, you assume that everybody in the waiting room is sick. And my friends, this church is not a job interview. You do not have to put your best foot forward. You don't have to put the best face on. We welcome you to come to church and we're going to pray with you and believe with you and we're going to share the truth with you and we believe that the gospel can set anyone free. Amen. As a pastor, I understand that not only is this an uncomfortable issue, but I also have to say that the church in times past, we don't know how, we've, we've not known how to deal with this issue before. Most of us, when we grew up in church, the pastor would just say it's sinful and go on about it. Never address what about these people with these feelings? What, how do you answer the questions? It was just, it's sinful, it's wrong. And you'll go to hell. Those things may be true, but it still doesn't answer the question of why people have certain feelings. And the church has had some wrongs. We, we've not always dealt with this issue with compassion. We've not always dealt with this issue with grace and mercy. Oh, we have been good with truth. We've spoke the truth. And we won't apologize for that. But we haven't always mixed it with mercy and truth and grace. We have been wrong in a lot of things. We make gay jokes. Most of you are very good at your gay radar, pointing out everybody that's gay. My friends, that's wrong. You have been indoctrinated by Babylon. And just because a guy likes to hunt and fish and work on trucks, you think he's masculine and he's a true man and he's a straight man. And a woman, if she dresses a certain way, then she must be, you know, a lesbian. Our very idea of manhood and womanhood is jacked up. We think that a true man works on a car and wear cowboy boots. And we think that if a woman dresses a certain way, she must be a We don't have a biblical understanding of what a true man of God is and what a true woman of God is. I think that what we need to do is not listen to what the culture says a man is or what a woman is. Let's go back to the Bible and see what the Bible says a man is. And let's see what the Bible says a woman is. If somebody is single for too long, some of us have a gay radar. Well, they must be gay. But you see, you don't have a biblical mindset. Jesus endorsed singleness. Paul endorsed singleness. And the early church fathers endorsed singleness. Paul said, if it's possible, please live single so you can devote yourself to the house of God and not be distracted by marriage. 
Singleness is approved and honored by the church and by God himself. For the 1,500 years of church history, singleness was the way to go if you want to serve God in his church. But now we have reversed it. You have to be married or there's something wrong with you. My friends, you don't know the struggle of people's hearts. There has been people that's been through multiple divorces, people that's been hurt, people that's been widowed. And for us to always have our gay radar out, you are wounding people by calling people's names. Is this some good preaching or what? What am I saying? I'm saying this. You don't know people's struggle. You don't know their life. There's football players that come out of the closet. You don't know what people go through. You don't know their struggle. You don't know what happened to them as a child. You don't know the molestation that they had to endure as a child. And the fear and the hurt that they had to navigate through as a child. As a church, we have not dealt with this issue properly. We have not. And I'm sorry for that. But as a pastor, I love people greatly. And I'm going to do my very best to present this with truth and love and respect. Amen. What does the Bible say about homosexuality? The Bible in the scripture says this. The Bible says that the practice of homosexuality is sinful. Nowhere in scripture does the Bible ever picture homosexuality as positive. You can try to find a scripture, infer a scripture, but all six to eight scriptures that refer to homosexuality is never pictured as a positive practice. Never. So according to the scriptures, homosexuality is sinful and it's incompatible to the New Testament and Old Testament teaching. It is sinful. Nowhere in scripture is in the entire Bible does it promote homosexuality. Now as we progress in today's sermon and next week's sermon, we'll look at those scriptures. But I do want to pinpoint four things of why the Bible teaches that it's sinful. Now, I'm not going to get into these, th- these things. I'm just going to list them really quick. I'll go back to them. The very first thing I believe that the Bible teaches that it's sinful is, number one, it's a violation of the created order. It's a violation of the created order. In other words, at the beginning of time, God created order And that order he set in motion, and it was man and woman. Number two, it denounces procreation categorically. In other words, the two halves of creation, man and woman, coming together makes a complete one flesh. Two halves of humanity coming together make one complete flesh. One flesh. Jesus echoes this in the New Testament, that the the man should leave his mother and father and be cleave unto his wife, and the two shall become one. Two halves in humanity becoming one. It denounces procreation. The purpose of marriage is one of the purposes of marriage is procreation. It is the law that God put in command in the book of Genesis that a couple, a man and a woman, coming together in marriage should reproduce after their own kind. 
the God said to be fruitful and to multiply. Now, I said categorically because there are couples, and I know some of them in my previous church and uh, the years I've pastored and known people, that they could not have children. But categorically, it takes a man and a woman to have a child. So just because you can't have a child, that doesn't mean you're cursed or something is wrong. It just means that categorically, it, usually, it takes a man and a woman for a child to come into existence. Number three, it blasphemes the illustration. In the New Testament, according to Ephesians chapter 5, marriage resembles the Trinity, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And number two, it represents, it represents Christ and his church. The church stands as a picture of a female in the New Testament, and Christ is the male. It is a picture of Christ and the church. Marriage is for procreation. It's for sexual fulfillment in the bonds of marriage. It is for partnership, and it's also for companionship. It demonstrates this, this illustration of Christ and his church. What did Paul say? That men should love their wives as Christ loves the church. That is an illustration. Marriage is an illustration of Christ and the church. We cannot deny that. And that is why the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church claims that marriage is a sacrament. It is very holy because it represents a union that you cannot see. When you are water baptized, you are saying this, I am doing something physical because something supernatural that I cannot see. I am acting out something that's already happened to me spiritually. It's an act of something invisible. Marriage is an act of something invisible of Christ and his church being married. So it blasphemes the illustration. Number four, it denies the need for sanctification. The reason that there are two halves in marriage is because for sanctification. A purpose of marriage is sanctification. That is why if you're having trouble in marriage, that's not a reason to be divorced. Because marriage is for your sanctification. It is a tool to make you better not bitter. And if somebody, if you're in union with something that God said no, then that does not produce sanctification in your life. And number four, it's the worship of self. You are coming in agreement with somebody that looks like you of the same sex, and it's the highest form of adultery by worshiping yourself. I want to say a few things about this subject before I get into the meat of it. These are several things. Now, you don't need to write this down because I'm not at the meat of it. But these are things that I think is important that I need to say. Number one, I cannot nor will I apologize for what the Bible says or what the Bible teaches. I cannot do that. So, I, I, I'm not being rude. I said a few moments ago, I'm going to do this with love and respect. But at the same time, I'm a spiritual father, I'm a pastor, and I'm a preacher and I'll study the scriptures, and I cannot nor will I apologize for what the Bible teaches. I cannot. Jesus said this. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10 and verse number 34, listen to the words of Jesus. Do not think that I've come to bring peace on the earth. I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a what? A sword. For I have come to set a man against a father, a daughter against his mother, and a daughter-in-law against his mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be those of his own household. 
Is there anybody listening to Pastor Josh this morning? Did you hear what Jesus said? Jesus is saying that I have come to bring a sword. Now, Jesus is not physically dividing people, but I want you to see the context, the metaphor that Jesus is trying to illustrate. Jesus is saying my message, my teaching is going to bring division even in your family. So my message that I'm teaching is going to bring division. And what is happening in our culture? Churches are dividing. Families are dividing. Parents don't agree with it, etc. Or children don't agree. And, and there, there's division. Jesus said it's going to happen because his message, if you truly follow the message of Jesus, Jesus said that my message will bring division even in your house. And I want to let this, I want to say this and say it with love and respect, that Jesus is your God, not your children. Jesus is the one that we worship, not your spouse. I'm going to say it again. Your spouse is not your God and your children are not your God. You are to be a leader and a discipler to lead them to Christ, not to worship them. Children are supposed to be an addition. They're not supposed to be a replacement. You don't have children so to fulfill your insecurities. You don't have a child for somebody to love you. You don't get married for somebody to love you. If you don't love yourself, nobody else is going to love you. You can't get, you can't get into marriage trying to find somebody to complete you because it will never work. If you're not complete in the inside, nobody can ever complete you. Whether it's heterosexual or, or homosexual, it will never complete you. Ever. It will never complete you because that, that's not the purpose of marriage. Now, is it good to have a happy marriage? Yes. Can you have a happy? Yes. Sometimes it takes work, it takes intentionality, it takes sanctification. It's possible. And there are great marriages and there are great examples for us to follow. But the main purpose of marriage is not just to complete all your needs. You can never, you, you can never look to someone as if that person can fulfill all your needs. Really? That person can't fulfill all your needs. There's only some needs that God could only fill. God, listen, listen to pastor. God put a God hole on the inside of you. There is a hole on the inside of you in your spirit. It's called the God hole. And if we don't realize that, we will spend our whole life shacking up with people, running here, running there, going here, texting, Instagram, Facebook, trying to how many likes we, because there's something on the inside that we want from people. Listen, there's only one thing that can ever fill that God hole, and that is a personal relationship, communion with Christ Jesus. He's the only one that could ever do that. It, it doesn't matter how much sex you have and how many relationships you have, it will never fulfill that God hole on the inside of you. Never. Jesus said that my gospel, my teaching is going to bring division. Number two, I cannot rewrite the Bible to accommodate a society that needs the Bible. I can't do that. 
I can't rewrite the Bible to accommodate a society that needs a Bible. Jesus said this in John 3.19. Listen to the words. And the judgment is based on this fact, that God's light came into the world, but people loved their darkness more than light, for their actions were evil. You see, my friends, we cannot change the light to appease the darkness. God's word doesn't change. It doesn't adapt to culture. It transcends, it transcends the culture. I was listening to an interview of a Catholic archbishop being interviewed by the media. The interviewer said, Bishop, why don't the Catholic Church accept same-sex marriages? The culture is accepting it. I never forgot what the bishop said. He looked at the woman and said, uh, we, transcend, we transcend the culture. It's, we're above God's laws, God's word doesn't go with the flow of culture. You see, what we have done, we have, we have been so mesmerized. We have become so bewitched by the popularity that we're no longer yearning for truth and sound doctrine anymore. I want to say this. This word is a living word. And it will work all by itself. I don't have to tweak it. I don't have to modernize it. I don't have to package it up to make it all cute and hand it to you so you can be a weak Christian. I must, as a pastor, give to you the uncompromised, undiluted word of God. It worked for thousands of years. It still works today. Sin is still sin and righteousness is still righteousness. Jesus preached it and I'm going to preach it too. I am not here to raise up a bunch of weak Christians where I got to get up here and package it so cute and wrap it in a bow and give it to you so you're not offended because you might go to the church up the street next week. If you're that silly and that wishy-washy, then my friends go to the church up the street. Because you will live your life running from church to church trying to find somebody to tickle your ears and tell you what you want to hear. But if you really want to grow, sometimes you've got to plant yourself instead of being potted. You've got to plant yourself in the house of God and determine that I'm going to grow whether I like it or whether I don't, whether I agree with it or whether I don't agree with it. I want to be more like Jesus and I don't want to be like this culture. The real gospel calls us to die to ourselves. You see, the Bible says that Eve saw good. She saw the fruit. She saw good in what God said would kill her. It, doesn't, it didn't matter how good the tree looked like. What mattered is what God said the tree looked like. And we are living in a culture that will make you believe that you have the right to determine what is good. We are like Eve, we're standing at the tree and we're looking at the tree, we look at the fruit and we're saying the fruit is good. But God said it's, it's going to kill you. But the media, the school, the government is saying the fruit is good, it's good, it's pleasurable, it's fun. And God said it's going to kill you. And society is telling us, you determine what is good. You are your own God. 
You determine how you want to live your life. The theologian Matt Slick said it like this, and I quote, We need to write about homosexuality because it is addressed in the Bible. It is a moral issue that affects society. Therefore, it also is, it affects religious and social institutions. As the influence of homosexuality increases, it will continue to invade our churches, our homes, our families, and affect change around us. Therefore, we need to have a rational, biblical defense for the Christian position as well as an examination of the problems that homosexuality brings. Number three, love has very little to do with your feelings. Love has very little to do with your feelings. Now, I've, how long have I preached, Pastor Brandon? Come on, tell me, how long? Say it with confidence. Say it with just love. Stand up and just shout to the church how long I've preached. Come on, don't be afraid. All right. <laughs> just, just be confident, Pastor Brandon. That's all. Just, you ain't going to get in trouble. Can, can I close after this, this, this point? I'm going to close. Because I have so much. Y'all, I have so much. I mean, I'm just flowing up in here. I got so much. But some of you looking at me like, I don't want to fry your brains today, okay? So can I just stop with this point? Come on, how many's with me? So let's stop with this point. Love has very little to do with our feelings. Look at this scripture. Look at it behind me. Look at it. Matthew 10, verse 17. Now, as he was going out, Mark, excuse me, Mark 10, verse 17. Now, as they were going out of the road, one came running and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good, but that is God. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And he asked and said to him, teacher, all these things I have done from my youth. And Jesus looking at him, loved him. Jesus looking at him, loved him. And said to him, one thing you lack, go your way and sell whatever you have to the poor. And you have treasure in heaven. Come and take up your cross and follow me. Look at verse 22. But he was sad at this word. And he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now look at two scriptures very closely. I want you to see verse number 21. Verse 21, and Jesus looking at him, loved him. I want you to read the very first part of that sentence with me. Ready? One, two, three. Then Jesus loved him. One more time. Then Jesus looking at him. Now I want you to look at verse number 27. But he was, verse 27. He was sad at this word. 22, I'm sorry, verse 22. He was sad at this word. Do you see what's happening here? The man asked a question. Jesus loved him. Jesus told him the truth. 
And yet the man went away sad. Can I just say that again? Jesus loved him. Jesus told him the truth. And yet the man went away. Follow me. Jesus loved him. Jesus told him the, and he went away. Love has nothing to do with feelings. Love is about truth. Love is love. Really? Let me give you some sewage, sewage water. Water is water. Love is not love. You can honestly love someone of the same sex deeply and not want to have sex with them. It's called a platonic relationship. I can love my, you can love your children deeply and not want to have sex with your children. Love is not sex. Truth without grace is mean. Grace without truth is meaningless. Truth and grace is the medicine. Grace invites us to be free, but truth sets us free. If your vision, listen, if your vision of God just validates the way you live and affirms the way you live, and that you're living, and that you're living, but it it doesn't confront you, it doesn't challenge you, it doesn't hold you to a, a standard, it doesn't hold you accountable, then maybe your God is your own creation. Maybe he's not really the God of the Bible. Maybe he's a God of your own projection that you've put up in the sky. Really? Does God always agree with you about everything? It amazes me. I meet a lot of people always hearing about hearing God. Always seeing gold dust. Always in the presence of God. But they're as rude as a rattlesnake at the restaurant. You walk by them in church and they roll their eyes. I love God just as much as anybody loves God. And once in a while, I wish I could see gold dust. Next week, we're going to look at number four. Number four, it's, it's really interesting because, put number four up there. I can't impose a Christian worldview on someone that don't have a foundation to understand it. If somebody's not a Christian and don't care anything about the Bible, I can't argue the Bible with them about homosexuality. They don't care about the Bible. So I am dealing with Christians who think it's okay. That's why I'm preaching this sermon. I have to, if I'm going to argue homosexuality with somebody that don't care about what God thinks or care what the Bible says and don't even read the Bible and is a pagan, then I have to use some other approach. Amen. May the Lord add the blessing to the preaching of the word of God. And the church said...